Warning, this episode includes conversations about trauma, addiction, abuse, and other subjects and situations that may be triggering for some listeners. Our intention with this series is to educate and inspire. And while mental health professionals are being interviewed, this podcast does not offer personalized medical advice. If you need help or are in crisis, please seek medical attention and advice from a professional. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoy this episode of Spirit and Recovery on Inside the Wooniverse. From states of euphoria and joy to grief and trauma, the human condition asks us to bear witness to it all. Yet how we respond, how we react, and how we internalize these events and memories can be extraordinarily unique and profoundly impactful, especially where trauma is involved. But if we've surrendered to spirit, we gain the most amazing partner in our healing journey. Spirit and recovery go hand in hand. In this limited series, we'll explore healing modalities, philosophies, and soulful practices that are designed to support recovery on all levels. Let's navigate these waters together with compassion and love. There is wisdom waiting to be shared. You're not alone. We're in this together. Hi there, and welcome to Inside the Wooniverse, a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine. I'm your host, Colette Baron-Reed, and this is the very first episode of our limited podcast series called Spirit and Recovery. Now, if you're an avid listener of the podcast or if you've read my books, then there's a pretty good chance that you know about the addiction that I had to drugs and alcohol and that, to the grace of God, I have been living clean and sober one day at a time for over 37 years. And I wouldn't be here today if I hadn't created and leaned on a deep relationship with spirit during that recovery and still today. It's a profound experience to be here with you and a humbling one, to be honest. Here I am today, over 37 years later, one day at a time, from where I started and now today able to create this series and be here with you having this conversation. Now joining us today and leading this interview is Connie Giletti, my executive producer. Now if you've listened to this podcast, you know she's a familiar voice and a great one. But if not, you're in for a treat. Over to you, Connie. Oh, thank you, Colette. And I appreciate you trusting me with this role. So, <laughs> Of course I do. Thank you. Thank <laughs> My you. My pleasure. So, okay, let's get started. Within the 50 plus podcast episodes that precede this one, you've shared some stories from your childhood and some glimpses into what it was like growing up for you and being in your family. So as a starting point today and in this conversation, through the lens of spirit and recovery, what was it like being a child in your home and when were you first introduced to alcohol? You know what's really funny? I think that it wouldn't have mattered where I was or who I grew up with because I I think it was less about the environment and more about how I was born rather than the environment I was raised in. Because I was raised in a very loving environment, very loving environment. I mean, uh, my experience with alcohol came, I think, when I was 12. I had my first drink, which was called Schlievovitz. I'll never forget it. My dad gave me one. It's like plum brandy, right? Like like it's a hundred proof or something. And preceding the drink. Mm -hmm. And again, nothing to do with my parents or the environment, but I always felt too much. Always. I always felt everything. There was no boundary between me and anyone else. I knew things about people I shouldn't know without prior knowledge. I had dreams about my mother's background, my father's background that I couldn't possibly know about. I mean, I was a walking boundaryless 
being. Mm -hmm. And I never felt like I fit in anywhere. And I felt like I was never safe. And it had nothing to do with, I was safe with them. There was nothing in my family, my exact family to suggest I shouldn't be safe, but I never felt safe. Mm -hmm. Was that because of the ancestral patterning of my parents going through World War II, especially my mom? Don't know. But it doesn't really matter because what happened when I had my first drink was all of a sudden all that went away. Literally one drink. I'll never forget. I can smell the room. I even know which room it was, was the living room. I even remember it was in front of a very specific desk my mom had that had a leather inlay. I remember the moment it went through my mouth, it was burning. I didn't particularly love the taste, but boy, oh boy, did I ever feel smart, grounded together as much as a smart, grounded together 12-year-old should ever feel. <laughs> right. And I yeah. wasn't scared of anything. Like that was what happened. So it became it right away was medicine. It was like, oh, this is magic. And so you felt something a positive, uh, very a positive. Yeah. Oh yeah, very very. And I wanted more right away. And my dad noticed that. Right. It was yeah, like, yeah. and actually, I've never remembered in my house alcohol bottles because my dad had a booze cabinet that didn't have masking tape on it to tell my father how much booze was in the bottle. And I'm pretty sure they put it on there because of me <laughs> you know, or maybe really? my sister. Oh, okay. yeah. Because okay. why would people do? Why would anybody do that? I don't know. I've never met anybody that does that. I just thought anybody did that because I never saw anybody else's booze cabinet. Right. But right. they had, they were like making sure, you know, this is where it is today. And then mm -hmm. if it was any lower, but I, I think there was concern right from the time that I was 12. So I actually started having trouble with it by the time I was 15. So just three years later, I hung out with the kids in school. It was funny because my parents were very, uh, you have to be with people from good families, whatever that meant. They were very, very socially conscious to put us in a, what they thought would be safe, which would be a very wasp environment. My parents had heavy accents, European accents, and in this particular school, was this upper crust Canadian society thing. And and I think the only reason we got in was because of my dad's title, which was Baron, which meant nothing because it was really like it. And I think because they were very impressed by the fact that it sounded good. I don't know, because I, I think it's a bunch of BS today. But anyhow, <laughs> we were allowed in there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, let and we were very, very clearly let known that we were not Canadian enough ever. Like that was to my face. So I started hanging around with kids who smoked I was bad. I was like a rebel. I thought that was cool. So anything that looks like outside the norm or outside mm -hmm. the law, not the mm -hmm. law, but the law of my of neighborhood, of children, the children laws, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of, of, of the school, mm -hmm. you know, like I, I wanted to do that. So I was very much a rebel and alcohol fueled it. You know, it was funny because I got in the worst trouble with those kids from the supposedly good families. You know, they were, oh, you can go to their house, sleep over. But meanwhile, they're the ones that were doing the drugs and the drinking right? and throwing up in their parents' cars. So, you know, I, it, the bottom line is, is I can't blame any environmental influence, although I'm sure it certainly does bring in something. But I think I was born with this allergy to alcohol and born with the predisposition to addiction. So I'm accountable. I can't blame myself, but it is what it is. 
So when you were 12 and you took your first drink and you had a response that was positive, at what point did your interaction with an outside substance, whether it was like alcohol or drugs, when did it become negative? Because so far you're explaining that it gave you a sense of kind of escape. It gave you- Oh, it became negative as soon as I kept going. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Oh my God. As soon as it became- too much, right? Like there was no valve of like having one drink. I mean, my parents could make sure I didn't have more than one or two. And, but they like every night they had like Martini Rossi and their cigarettes. So there was smoking, there was drinking, there was, but it was always very controlled. But as soon Mm -hmm. as it became, I had no control right from the get go. Like if I could have drank a whole bottle, I would have. Okay. Um, And we used to with, you know, get our, get our little friends together in our parents' cars and off we would go. So it became problematic right from the beginning. I can tell you, look right from the beginning, even though it, I was seeking the first feeling, which was, I am now whole. Yes. It never stayed like that. But when I drank, I was socially no longer awkward. I could have these, I could dance, I could do all these things. that Inhibitions were. Exactly. My inhibitions definitely dissolved. (laughs) So what would you say was the journey then from being a teenager who was, you know, engaging with these substances to release inhibitions and to be more, you know, socially engaged Mm -hmm. to then going into adulthood. And even though, like you said, you had an awareness that this was harming you in some way or that there was like, there was something, there was like a couple red flags for yourself. Oh, there was more than a couple. Okay. Talk to me. So, um, (laughs) well, let's go concurrently, like concurrently. I think when you're abusing alcohol and drugs, uh, certainly on my end, um, you know, I also had severe depression and anxiety. So there was like this vicious circle of, oh, if I have a drink, I won't feel like that. And I'm only a kid too at this stage. It's like the facade was so, you know, it looked super clean and you never weren't allowed to talk about anything that would, you know, potentially make you appear different, which was was my mother's desire. Absolutely. You are not going to stick out and you are going to get straight A's and, you know, but meanwhile, I was in turmoil internally in turmoil. And I wonder sometimes like, you know, because my mother was pretty convinced that we were molested by our babysitter neighbor when we were kids. I, I have no idea. Like I've tried, I don't have a memory of that, but mm-hmm. um, certainly there was an implication. And then, you know, like, I don't know, like what, where, which came first, the chicken or the egg? I don't know. But I can tell you nothing good comes out of it because then I don't know if it was because I, I had alcoholism that I was depressed or because I had was depressed and I had these things happen, then alcohol made me feel, but who knows? All right. Um, but the bottom line is, is that then I had an eating disorder too. So uh, I had a lot of rage. I had a lot of, I did not know how to manage anger at all. And Mm -hmm. my parents, you know, this, and they were, they were upwardly mobile Europeans that were trying to fit in that really couldn't anyway, but did. And my dad did really well in academics and, you know, working hard was like your number one priority and, and marrying well and having babies and all that kind of stuff, but definitely going to either law school or medical school. Right. So uh, a lot, there was a lot of pressure and also uh, I didn't know how to manage. And of course, the generation my parents came from, my mom was very stoic. I mean, she like just pull up your bootstraps and Mm -hmm. keep moving. I never saw her cry. So there's a, a real sense of, I better figure this out myself, but didn't know how. And so I became bulimic. Mm. when I was 14. So uh, that was like the vomiting thing. I would go into the... Actually, the first time that I remember I did that was when my geography teacher told me in front of the whole class that I wasn't really Canadian 
because my parents were immigrants and I was the first person because they were talking about um, being Canadian. Of course, they they don't mention right. colonialism or anything, like in the in the route that you know mm-hmm. that it really is about. Right. But it's like we discovered Canada. Well, I know that's not true today, but <laughs> but basically because we weren't British, you know, we didn't have any connection to that. It was a very big thing, and I remember feeling so ashamed mm. that I was not the same because everybody would look at me. And at that point, I think we had a couple of Jewish kids in the class and some some other token people that they let in because this is the 1960s. Anyway, so I remember going into the bathroom and uh, sticking my finger down my throat and throwing up. Like right, I bought two donuts mm-hmm. <laughs> filled with cream, mm-hmm. cream donuts. I'll never forget. I remember what they were. And in I went, locked myself in the stall, ate them so fast and then threw them up. Right. To manage the overwhelm of emotions that were coming up, you had an external substance and then engaging in in another harmful behavior, like you said, to throw it up. So who knew which was what? So Mm -hmm. I, by the time I hit recovery when I was 27, the events that occurred as a result Mm -hmm. of the subsequent behavior and choices that one makes, that I made, based on the inability to manage my feelings and also the fact that I had this ability like uh, to feel the world and I and like bombarded by information that wasn't my own no there was no structure around that yeah I prefer not to use the word psychic because there's the kind of connotations of that used to be way more difficult years ago not so much now people actually love that like the word but for me it was like I was an intuitive and I could feel these things and there was no container for anything so um but then when I went to university Again, I had a lot of trouble at school. I went to law school and uh, had an overdose, um, then ended up having to make up the year in a kind of a summer school at another university, and I was gang raped there. But And I, when I say that, it, I get we're going to have to have some, you know, like some disclaimers here, you know, about this trauma, but I can see the direct relationship between drugs and alcohol. Mm. And accepting a ride from people I knew I was unsafe with and that kind of risk taking that I would never do if I was clean and sober, right? So the the choices we make, it was never to choose self-harm. It was to, mm-hmm. be, for my case, it was curiosity, like, ooh. You know, like these guys, like these bad guys, like maybe they're cool. Like, you know, I liked anybody that was an outlaw. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh, bikers, yay, mm-hmm. let's do that, right? So- and then, of course, after that, then you you drink more than your self-esteem is in the toilet, and then you make new choices. So um, I'm really adamant about not being a victim because I'm very observant and I can really witness this right now. Of course, it was devastating at the time. Of course, you know, I couldn't have kids as a result of it. I had a really bad infection. And then I had another series of violent things that made sense to me because it was what I knew, but I was looking for a different end to the story. Oh, another potentially violent man. Oh, I wonder if it'll be better this time and that person Mm -hmm. won't hurt me. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I kind of went into a bit of a psychosis, if you will, around that, you know, my early 20s. And then I was had the great fortune of meeting someone because I was in the music. I was that was the other thing. It was it was very acceptable to be wild because I was a singer songwriter. So that was mm-hmm. the other piece that made I, I found myself in environments and around people, working in bars and things. You know, so that you're in you're around it all the time. Yeah. Um, and it didn't look so unusual. Mm-hmm. But I had the I, I say it today. I had the great fortune to meet someone who introduced me to the express train oh. to hell, so I could get clean and sober early, <laughs> which was cocaine. Mm-hmm. And um, how old were you? this? Was twenty seven. No, no, no. I got clean and sober at 27. Okay. Yeah, so when what, I was 27. So when did you get the uh, fortunate 
Uh, the fortune, the great fortune to do that when I was 20. And a year later, it was like, oh, wow, I feel that would also, oh, I no longer feel bad about myself. Oh, my goodness gracious me. I feel just like God. And then, you know, so then in those moments, and then, of course, you have the crash and you have to do it again. So I I don't want to bore anybody with a drunkalog. Hold on a second. This is not... (laughs) It's not boring, but I, I feel like if we may interject one thing at this point, sure. at 20 on the express train, what was, if any, what what was your relationship with spirit like at this point? Okay. Spirit was always in my life. So that was the other thing. Mm. I think I was trying to fill a God-shaped hole my whole life with substances outside of myself. And I always believed in God. I just thought at that point, God was following me around with a fly swatter going, that's a mistake. <laughs> right? oh, we better get that one. Mm-hmm. Um, because I couldn't understand how these things could be happening to me. Right. And yep. and so, but I never gave up yes, on right. the idea that there could be some kind of redemption. Mm. Um, and I never stopped believing. I just, I just really thought I was a really bad person who then became a dirty person because of the things that happened to me, which made me then unlovable. That was kind of the- Okay, that's where- That was where I landed. Um, I'm unworthy, unlovable, not smart too, failing at everything. And I traded my self-worth and self-esteem for moments of feeling good that never lasted, right? So there would, maybe this time it's going to be different. It was like this insanity of of doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. Yes. Okay. And, and it's funny because I, I think about, it really makes me humble to talk about this because I am one of the lucky ones. I really am. When I think about where I came from, I mean, certainly I was raised by great parents who didn't have any like this this was not their plan and i know i my behavior really hurt them a lot and i think of of having had to make amends about it's it's very complicated the story is very complicated but what became very simple for me is when i hit bottom okay so at what point in the timeline was bottom and what did that look like i was 26 so just before that, it was the the winter. Okay. Is actually right now. I'll be honest, it's great because we're pre-recording this and people should know this. We're re-recording this. So it's actually exactly at this time, 37 years ago, right now. We're and I always December, get very, we're recording yes. December. And <laughs> yeah, I, I am really connecting to this story because mm. I'm going to be 37 years clean and sober January 2nd, one day at a time. And I do feel it more today that we're recording it now because I've just realized the date. Wow. This would have been around the date. Oh, I might cry. Um, uh, around the date where uh, I had that bottom and I realized I was going to die if I didn't. And I didn't know what to do. It wasn't like if I didn't do something because I had yeah. tried to do so many different things mm-hmm. and nothing worked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I promised and I made, you know, made so many promises that I broke because I had gone into a treatment center when I was 22. Yeah. And, uh, basically didn't learn anything. They even told us only out of the 35 of you, there may be eight of you that are going to survive. And wow. I'll never forget that. Wow. I'm like, I'm like ah! that was very hopeful. Um, but I was just like, I just wanted to talk about the boyfriends that hurt my feelings. And, okay. <laughs> and I didn't mm-hmm. want to hear about the, the recovery steps I had to take, mm. but I was ready. And I think, you know, the bottom for me 
was a bottom where I actually saw the truth of who I was instead of the being a legend in my own mind that other people around me fostered while I was sitting there passing the free base pipe. Okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, it was at, in front of a mirror in a, I, I hadn't basically bathed or slept, uh, you know, for about mm-hmm. a week. And when I was standing in front of this mirror is drug dealer's basement. It was early in the mornings. I would go home in the morning and I would look at myself in the mirror and I finally saw myself and, and my gums were bleeding because I had um, like my skin was atrophied. It was like almost like pockmarks, but it wasn't. Wow. Um, but I had yellow, my eyes, the whites of my eyes were yellow and I have gold colored eyes. So if you can imagine, I look like Rosemary's baby. Wow. <laughs> that, like, cause your liver was like trying to process, oh, yeah. help you detoxify. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I saw myself for the truth I was like, oh my God. And when, instead of help me, I'll never do it again, which was kind of the way I used to say, help me, oh my God. Right now it was like, I'm going to die. I'm like, I give up. Like I give up. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, I had a spiritual experience that to this day, I know saved my life. And even though it wasn't perfect, because after that I actually used a couple more times, which is why my dry date is January 2nd, because I was still awake from New Year's Eve, right? right? That's why I didn't go to bed till that. Yeah, I didn't go to bed, but I, I couldn't get high again. That was the other thing. Nothing worked. I couldn't get drunk. I couldn't get high. After that spiritual awakening and that guy's, I, I when I was like, I heard too, it's over. I wow. thought, I don't have to do this again. And wow. then I kept trying because I didn't have another choice. Well, you, um, you knew you did what you knew. Which what I was knew like, and nothing worked. Wow. It was like, I could drink a whole bottle and nothing would happen. And nothing. It was like, the universe was like, you're totally done now. So it, you're going to figure this out. So I ended up being the first client registered in a treatment center for women in Toronto. My friend and uh, boyfriend at the time did an intervention with me and Mm. the rest is history. And I went in there and they told me that I was going to be spending a lot of time in church basements. And I just said, no, I don't want to do that. I I really need to be deprogrammed. I've been hypnotized. (laughs) I said some crazy shit to them. (laughs) I laugh now. They're like smiling at me. and, (laughs) And they said, like, I said, no, I'd like to be an outpatient. And they're like, no, I think Inpatient is good, <laughs> right? <laughs> and You're I was like, trying to okay, I'm trying to tell right? them how yeah. it's going to go, right? You know, like, oh, no, 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 no. And I have to be able to see my boyfriend. Yeah. And, you know, I have things to do. I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm going to be famous. And, well, and they're like, mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> and the only good thing about doing all of that is that I was always really thin, right? I never had a weight problem. (laughs) But I'd rather be a little voluptuous and be healthy than ever have that again. So anyway, I ended up in this treatment center for women, you know, and listen, this is my story. It's not the same for everybody. When we decided to do this series, we knew that the recovery, because I had recovery from addiction and a recovery from trauma. So um, there's different layers of recovery that I've been through that I can address. But I ended up in a 12-step program and it saved my life. It saved my life. And I had this little old lady named Marguerite who was my sponsor and she was just like Aunt Clara from Bewitched. She was like <laughs> a kind of dotty old lady and she, well, she wasn't actually that old, but to me, she was like, I think she was my age now. But anyway, she would wear these big moo-moos and, and repeat herself very gently to me until I thought it was my idea. Yeah. And then I would call her up and say, guess what? And she'd be like, oh yes, dear. That's lovely. That's wonderful. That is such a great insight. Meanwhile, she'd been and saying it, right? Saying it, saying it. So yes. like basically I followed her around like a little duck. Yeah. And I remember all the counselors at the treatment center 
came to my one that we had a one year celebration oh, and a couple of them cried. And another mm. one said to me, you know, you were the one we voted less, least likely to succeed oh. because wow. I was so mentally yeah. unstable. One mm. of the doctors said I had schizophrenic psychosis mm. because I could hear voices. Mm. I was like trying to explain it. Like, well, okay, listen, you know, so these voices, yeah. well, now of course I'm a medium, right? So it's like they're dead people. <laughs> right. right? But you need a metaphys- like, okay. metaphysician actually I'm on a, the crew med- as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to explain my experiences and they're like writing it down. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay. Anxiety disease, manic depression, hypomania, all these like lists of of things that I was, the diagnoses, right? Which was really not that, but that's fine. Like I I have to say, you know, the very fact that I've come from that and here I am today. But the best part, the best part was that I had structure and the structure was about shadow work and the layers of what I was capable of going through, which is why I love the fact that those 12 steps, and again, keep an open mind. Some of you guys are going to listen to this show and go, I never do that. And you don't have to. Just try to identify if you have a problem and you're listening to this show today. Uh, just see if you can identify with my feelings. And all I'm going to tell you is how it worked, right? It's like, how, how did I become who I am today? And it's because the structure enabled me to have a conscious contact to my higher power on a daily, and I could live one day at a time because anybody could handle a day. Well, this is the thing, literally to my next question. (laughs) What does it mean to be living a clean and sober lifestyle? And how did the 12 steps support you in that? It's really important that there is a very specific thing about 12-step programs uh, is, is anonymity, right? So I am not speaking for a program. I am not speaking, I'm not even acknowledging that I am in a program, right? So, but at the time, I will talk about the, the fact structure that, that helped you. the structure that helped me mm-hmm. was about a core value of accountability, mm-hmm. uh, a core value of trust, a core value of forgiveness, a core value of action, and a way in which to redefine what happened and what purpose that could serve. So much like um, I have a card in my uh, spirit animal oracle. Mm -hmm. I remember my dad, when he taught me how to read Turkish coffee cups, he said to me, you know, like the vulture, nothing is ever wasted because the vulture can take in the carcass, something Mm -hmm. that is diseased Mm -hmm. and unusable, and turn it into something usable, like fertilizer. Like it takes away all the bacteria and anything mm-hmm. negative, but when it digests it, right? Right. So it became, I could take the worst thing that happened to me in my life, mm-hmm. and by sharing it with others, I could help them. And by outlining what I did to take the steps to move away from that place. And it was an evolution. It wasn't an overnight thing. For the past 37 years, it's still peeling onions. You say one day at a time, like the skin is one skin at a time, one day at a time. And to your point that you just mentioned that we know people can be, you know, and I'll just use it in air quotes because I know some people say misuse, some people say addicted, Mm -hmm. but there can be substances, there can be behaviors like shopping, like eating, sex addiction, addiction, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Gaming, the internet itself, right? Just scrolling, social media, sports, I mean, whatever. But what do you wish more people knew? about addiction and about spirit as a partner in recovering from that? Well, addiction is not moral. Mm. It's not an immorality and it doesn't mean that you're less of a person. Like that's really important that it is 
Um, I, I like the disease model in that you, or in the allergy model, like you're allergic to the substance that you don't have the capacity to um, to metabolize it. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. an escape. It's an escape so that it is, it's a symptom of something much deeper. Mm-hmm. And that it is possible to live free of the burdens of the memory of the, if certainly if you have a conscience, you, you have to clean up your past. Mm-hmm. You absolutely have to, you have to face it and you have to release yourself from it. And when it is possible, you have to make direct amends to people. And sometimes it's not possible because it's, they say, except to, when to do so would injure them or others, right? Mm-hmm. Or yourself, right? So you can clean your life up and you can live sober, meaning clean and sober doesn't mean without like dry, because you can be a dry drunk, mm-hmm. right? Sobriety is the willingness to do whatever it takes to be to keep that wholeness, to do the shadow work that is necessary so that you don't cause harm. Certainly a lot of, we do unconsciously, we don't mean to, whatever. And to become productive members of society, wherever that looks like. You can be that. That's so fascinating. So like clean and sober as a concept of like sobriety being consciousness, like being aware. Yes. And clean and cleanliness being like good. Yeah. If we can make simplify it like that. But that's very fascinating and interesting. Yeah. Good orderly direction. You're right. That's God. And also to know that it's it's progress, not perfection. That was also something I gained a lot from my experiences in those church basements. I mean, I, I literally believe that I owe my entire life to 12-step programs. I really mm-hmm. do. Like, and therapy. Mm-hmm. So because I had all the different traumas that were, it's not appropriate to, I, you know, like there's only so much I can get to from one program. And so then I went to other ones, right, that were specific to those things. For me, the things like EMDR, the tapping, you know, tapping is great, but I don't avoid anything. And I've made mistakes even in recovery, even in the, the person that I am today, you know, I'll see some unconscious behaviors come up again and realize, wow, I thought I had cleaned that up, right? And then, because we're just people, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. so I think that's the other thing. I think it's really important to recognize that we are human, you know, and that when you, a clean and sober life is the reclamation of your humanity, with all the, the full catastrophe of it and and you have and willingness to be present to all aspects of your life and willing to clean it up and not to clean up things that are not yours because that's also part of it the deep sense of codependency and people pleasing and behaviors that the, that we become very maladapted um, things that worked for us to survive early on once you get clean and sober you realize oh I can't behave like that anymore you know then you have to deal with it as it comes up as you are able because nothing is solved overnight. Oh, what a great point, Colette. So interesting. Okay, we're going to take a little pause. More with Colette when we return. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We're here in conversation with Colette about spirit and recovery. Okay, call it. My next question, I think you maybe even started touching upon that relationship between addiction and shadow work. Yeah. And like the shadow, okay, so there is a seduction, a seductive quality to the internet right now, for example. And I can tell you that our culture is a culture of addiction. You know, we become obsessed with the way people look 
on Instagram or the way, you know, like, oh, my life doesn't look like that, like my real life. So I, there must be something wrong with me. I see a lot of young people going through that right now, you know, seeing what it looks like and it's not the same. Psychologically, but also and biologically, it's a trigger enriched environment because we're set up with scrolling, dopamine hits, you know, yes. it's like the neurotransmission. Yeah. You get rewards too. Oh my God, look at all the likes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Look at all that. It's, it's, I'm very conscious and very boundaried around social media because it's a time sucker. Look, look at where we go out. Everybody's got their faces looking at their devices. Like the, nobody yeah. looks at each mm -hmm. other. You know, even my husband and I sometimes, and we're pretty good at leaving our phone at home we go to dinner and whatever if we don't there we are like you know and then we're pretty you know I'm very conscious of it but it's not just that it's like we are looking for ways in which to feel good as we receive information of stories that makes us feel powerless like the climate change like uh war you know social yeah, justice famine. war yes, all of these of things course. that feel mm -hmm. too big for the individual to handle mm -hmm. then oh where's my escape oh I feel good doing that because you do you feel good you know, like I, I don't gamble just because I, I can just really get right in there. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'll take $20 to a slot machine if I go to Las Vegas. I work too hard for my money, but I'm not because I know that, ooh, that feeling of winning, right? It's like awareness though, I mean, that you're yeah. talking about is that anybody can be aware of their behaviors and everyone like the human condition, we all have opportunities to engage or indulge in something. And when we are, especially when we're feeling a certain way, like, like you identified powerless, uh, we get this infusion of news, we get this infusion of events and things we, beyond our control, it is in a way natural to want to soothe ourselves in some way. Yeah, it's a self-soothing thing. Mm -hmm. You, me and ice cream, you should see me. <laughs> I mean, I, like Mark, he'll, uh, like he'll know, like when I'm, I'm past uh, the halfway point on a dessert, he'd be like, should you keep going with that? Because he'd be like, like whoa, hey, is this yummy. a soothing thing or a tasting <laughs> thing? Because it's not, NBA, yeah, right? it goes into a different zone for me. And I'm very conscious of that. Like food is my thing. Like I cannot have a very specific type of chocolate chip cookie that has coconut and pecans in it. <laughs> I cannot have a bag near me. I will yeah. eat the whole thing. <laughs> right. I can't, I just won't. I'll, uh, so I just, I've become really aware. I mean, that's, that's the worst thing that happens to me now. I eat too many chocolate chip coffees. It's not, it's not a big deal. But I'm also aware of being out of the moment, being in the soothing, looking for something outside of myself when really being present, not trying to escape what's really going on, not trying to escape reality and having a reasonable relationship with soothing things, which are yeah. good. Like it's mm -hmm. good to be soothing also, but it's not good for us to be doing that all the time when we end up making it Harmful. harmful. There's a level, right? There's a yeah. There's a line to cross. There's a line, uh, a distinguishing and being aware of that is that clean and sober. So, how would you define recovery? And this might be a funny question, but is a person? Would you say we're always in a state of recovery? Are you ever recovered? Or like? Yeah, it's a weird. It's a weird conversation because I believe I'm a recovered. Okay. alcoholic or drug addict because I haven't had it, you know, because one would like to believe that we are past that. But I'm also not safe to pick up a drink. Okay. I, I One day, okay. I don't even play with that. Okay. Because somebody said to me, why do you call yourself an alcoholic? Cause, because I, I, cause I know where I went and I've seen it. It is, there has been evidence in front of me when a person goes back out and picks up a drink, they very quickly 
go to the place they left off and mostly die Mm. or land in an institution or kill themselves, right? So I can't play with certain things and I never will be able to and I'm okay with that. But I only do that one day at a time. I don't say for the rest of my life I won't do blah or blah. Right. But spirit, Mm -hmm. you'd asked me a question earlier. I didn't quite finish it. Yes. (laughs) Spirit and recovery is I am always in conscious contact to a higher power and I don't do this alone. I am clean and sober by the grace of God. My, I got a second chance at life that I didn't deserve. I didn't win a prize because I was a good person or whatever. You know, I, I had to become someone new and I'm continuing to become someone new in order to serve. And because I got that second chance, I don't take my life for granted one iota. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is in service to the divine. It is my thanks back. Mm. You know, if the way I live today and it's not perfect. I make mistakes. I've made poor judgments. Uh, that's just human. But where I can and where it is appropriate, I will clean it up. But yeah, God is number one. My primary relationship is to my higher power, period. Because we're in the Looniverse. That's because we're I in the Looniverse. I got to ask a couple more <laughs> questions here. Yes. But I'm, uh, I'm going to turn it to a couple more magical aspects sure. of your recovery because you have talked about this. So I wanted to kind of like start pulling a couple threads out. So divination. Oh, that became a big piece. Let's talk about where did divination start entering into your recovery and how did spirit and divination then continue the journey with you? So here's the coolest thing. So I had obviously had a, my own tarot deck. I, I had my first tarot deck when I was 17, but then somebody gifted me a tarot deck in my 20s. But I was seeing it as the typical mystical, esoteric, mm-hmm. uh, exotic, you know, <laughs> fortune-telling device, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, it wasn't what it is for me today until I was, I was in my first or second year of sobriety And I went to a therapist. She was a Jungian analyst, which is why I became fascinated with Jung. But she was a psychotherapist who used Jung. And she used a tarot deck called the Handel Tarot, H-A-N-D-L, tarot, as part of our therapy. Okay. And I'm like, wait a second, (laughs) what are those, right? Like, What are you telling my fortune? I'm here for therapy. (laughs) No, no, she didn't ever talk about that. And I didn't, and I'd never seen, and I had never seen that deck. So I didn't equate it to tarot until I looked at it Mm. and went, wait, that's a tarot deck. You called it, you know, she says, so we're going to pull a, we're going to, you know, we're going to do something unique and different. We're going to pull a card and we're going to talk about what comes up. And so I was like, oh, good, pull a card. Oh, I know about cards in my head, but it's like not, I didn't see tarot deck until I looked at the box. I'm like, wait a sec, that's like a tarot, like (laughs) stuff I know. You can do it for this, Mm. you know? And then I was like, I jumped right in there because all of a sudden, the thing that I was most drawn to, which was which were the mystical arts, it was something I was obsessed over since I was really young and anything to do with divination. Only now, this was me learning how to stay con- in a conscious contact with my higher power using the same card deck. Wow. That very profound, like witchy wow. one. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, wait a second, I could do that too? <laughs> Is that what this is for? So consequently, mm-hmm. I used it as a journaling tool, mm. right? I, I started journaling with them. And then I, then of course I became a reader. So I, I started reading. I'm, we're not going to really talk about that because I actually avoided it for the first two years. I didn't want anything to do with mm-hmm. doing it. And then I was able to see a more therapeutic perception of what the cards were telling me or a more psychological thing as opposed to event-driven. 
like this is going to happen or that happened. It was more like, oh, this quality insight is what's yeah. exactly wow. is what I'm seeing here. Um, and this is the psychology behind it. Does it make sense to you? And they're like, oh yeah, it's totally how I think and how I've been thinking. This is what's been, yeah, oh, that describes my husband. It's like, it became very deep and very wide. So, but it became a spiritual tool. So that is why I think really it's because I use divination and recovery to track myself because I also didn't trust myself. Mm. I trusted God. Yeah. Didn't trust me <laughs> at all. <laughs> Right? Because I also right away didn't, I mean, I was clean and sober off drugs and alcohol, but then I picked up food again. Mm, right. So, you know what I mean? So I wasn't, I was still active in an addiction, which was food, but it was better than the other things. So then that took a while and then I gave up cigarettes. So it was like layers. But so of course I still always felt that sense of I'm not a hundred percent sure I can trust myself. So this will help me. And it did. And I was like, Ooh, not only can I trust spirit, but I can, I have tools. I have a, Oh, Oh, right. This thing today, I have to watch out for this thing today. And I was gung-ho. I mean, I went to five meetings a week. I was very active. I was, you know, I started a program with two other guys early on many years ago, and I was one of the founders of the program. I'm not going to bother talking about it, but I was really committed to everything. And and uh, it was a life-changing moment where the woo-woo that I laugh, you know, that's why we call this Inside the Wooniverse. Mm -hmm. It's my it's a joyful name yes, yeah. for this. That's mm -hmm. why for the mystical qualities, mm -hmm. I don't, it's, you know, there's joy in it, but that was integrated into my recovery right from the get-go. Wow. That's so incredible. And to think of you at that time and how you've evolved your relationship with cards, with then going into Oracle decks, and it's such a rich now, even, well, I always thought your cards were so rich, but now even such a deeper, more meaningful point of birth for you and Oracle decks and cards. It's because of my recovery. Yeah. Wow. So that's, and I use recovery language also because, yeah, you said something about, um, are we always in recovery? Are we all, you know, earlier, and I, again, I kind of, I've been going around the circles yeah. answering your questions, but, yeah. you know, um, I, I believe that we're not broken, that we're never broken. It's that we perceive ourselves as broken, that all the pieces are there and they can always evolve. So I don't believe we're broken, but I believe that we emerge out of a state of being into the next state of being. And so things have to fall away. One of my favorite, favorite uh, spiritual teachers is Dr. Bio Akimalafe, who is a Nigerian teacher and, you know, healer and philosopher and amazing person. He always says, never not broken, but it is the Western viewpoint of what is broken, therefore it's unusable. Like you throw it away, that kind of brokenness, which is what I identified with before I got clean and sober, that I was a throwaway right? That is a different version. So this is, you are always emerging. So you're never the same. I think that's what that means. Never not broken is like, you are never going to be the same person. You are always going to evolve and move. And if you are conscious and aware of that, then you can celebrate that and not be afraid of the shadow and not be afraid of, you know, what has occurred and the deep trauma that you have as an individual, which I had individually, 
which was, by the way, exactly what happened to my mother at the same age, which was also very interesting, which wow. I didn't know about until after and I was in the hospital. And then my mother told me that it happened to her with Russian soldiers when she was 19. Wow. So, and then she goes, don't tell anybody after that. So meanwhile, she's, <laughs> I'm sure now she's in spirit. She doesn't mind, but mm -hmm. oh yeah, it was like, mm -hmm. oh yeah, never talk about the family and never tell anybody that you were ever vulnerable or mm -hmm. violated ever, ever. Right? So that was the other thing. I wasn't allowed to talk about it. So, um, but anyhow, but the idea is this, that we are not broken as in throwaway beings. You know, we may be wounded. We may come to recognize that in order to become the person we want to become, we need to change, which means we had to face things that we're afraid of, et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that the broken quality means we're throwaway. Broken in, in what I believe what he says and really hit me was that you know, when a tulip, for example, pushes itself out of the leaves, right? It's like it, they break open in order for this flower to rise up. So that's what we're always in the constant evolution of breaking open and not being broken, but breaking open. There's like a difference. with an egg. Exactly. Cracking, cracking yeah. into the next. And then they the crack next. one. And then they, exactly. And then another egg comes and it cracks yeah. open. Yeah. And so that was the other thing that had to change for me is to, and it gave me a great sense of empathy and compassion for people to realize that, yeah, like society has, you know, conditioned us. The, I like that Vishen Lakhiani says the mm. culture scape. Mm -hmm. I like that, you know, the culture scape. Um, you know, that the culture scape, we, we get conditioned by the culture scape and to see ourselves a certain way. If you don't conform to certain behaviors and norms, et cetera, then you're, you're broken somehow. Or, you're, or if you have been abused or if you, something has happened, like, no, this is like, this is part of who we are. I do not regret anything. Not one thing. When people say, oh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. I went, no, don't be sorry. Mm -hmm. Don't be sorry that happened to me. Mm -hmm. You know, as a result of these things that happened to me, and yes, yes, I can totally claim that I was victimized. 1,000%, I was victimized, but that doesn't mean that I am a victim. So it's right? that it happened for you, for your highest good or the highest good. Well, at the time, it sure didn't feel well, like that. <laughs> I'm just saying now but that you're saying, yes. yeah. Well, now I looked, I made it into that. I made it mean something else. And that that is my source of strength. Mm. And because um, what, what I made it mean when I was younger was that I was a victim. I was broken. I was dirty. I was useless. I was meant to be thrown away. Mm -hmm. As I got clean and sober and I could see myself uh, that God didn't make junk mm -hmm. and that even the people that did that, to me, you know, weren't junk either. They were just really hurt people, hurt people, mm. right? And have people control other people. Look at what happens in war, you know. Um, they use sex to control the population against the females in the population because it degrades them, em emasculates the men. It's like, it's a thing, right? Yeah. And so many women, in my, in my membership site, at the Oracle Circle membership, we had one woman talked very openly about something and then I, I shared my story. And then I said, like, how many of you in here it was hundreds of people in there have had an experience like this. And 90% of the people said me, 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 I have. So it's like, you know, I think it's really important for us to heal and change our behavior so that we do as little harm as we possibly can, like continue to become awake to what we do and what we say and what we are, not knowing, you know, I know personally I'm going to be working on myself until I die yeah. and not working on myself like I'm flawed, but like evolving, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. evolving myself and learning and learning how to be better connected with greater respect 
for others. We before me, to the best of my ability, and and be that emissary. And I think each one of us has a unique path. Each one of us has a purpose built right into us. And that being clean and sober is allowing that purpose to be basically me, letting me be the steward of that purpose. And you and I always say I, on my prayers, use me, mm-hmm. use me for your highest good. And sometimes I have to see things and, and experience things that are painful in order for me to change them. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, that pattern right there. See that thing you've been doing for years? <laughs> you see what that does? That's mm-hmm. no good, right? And, and like, how are you going to change that? And again, I don't do anything by myself. I, I do it with God. I do it with honesty to the best of my ability. I do it with a therapist. And I'll go through phases where I don't do therapy and other times I do. Um, I still use what I learned in the programs that I have attended in the past. And and I know where I can get help when I need it. And I don't, I, I'm, I have enough humility to know that I can't do it alone. Like that is something I know I'm not, because be left to my own devices, I'm behind enemy lines. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm like totally behind enemy lines in there. I will convince myself, no, no, I don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. So, but I'll be like, nope, bring it to <laughs> bring it to someone you trust, talk it out, work it out, and say, okay, what do I need to do, if anything, to clear this and to step into step into a life I'm proud of? And I can say I am. Mm-hmm. I can I really can say that today. So what do you hope? What's your deepest hope from this series that our listeners walk away with? Well, the reason we did it was because, you know, when you and I talked, you know, um, everybody's always asked me, tell your story and how did, you know, like, how did you come from this? And we wanted to use this series as a way to acknowledge how much pain there is for so many people and that there is hope. Mm -hmm. This is, this is about, my hope is that people find hope, right? That's Mm -hmm. my biggest hope. Mm -hmm. My intention to do this is to show people they're not alone, Mm -hmm. that, trauma, addiction, it comes in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're not, you're right? When And we do think that we're the only ones that feel that shame, that feel that isolation, that feel that sense of uselessness and, and rage and repression and all that stuff. Like we think it's only us, but it's not. And there is help. There is absolutely help for mental health is something where there is help to be had. You just have to want it. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to just reach out. There's that one section, that one step towards the gods, and they'll take 10 steps towards you. And nobody has to suffer alone. Nobody. Let's pull a card together to see if there's okay. anything else the universe <laughs> wants us to talk about. This has been really such a beautiful, inspiring, and uh, raw and vulnerable conversation. So thank you so much. Ah, yeah. And I, you know, it's funny. I, you know me, I'm pretty effusive, et cetera. And I did feel pretty humbled by the conversation today because it's like, yeah, I revisit. I never want to forget where I came from ever. You know, like people see me today. Oh, look at successful Colette. She has all these things. She teaches all over the world. She does all these things. All of those things are true. Mm -hmm. I am that person, but I grew out of this. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of a lot of manure in my garden. <laughs> On your little acorn to grow into. My little, my acorn. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there was a lot that went into that. I paid a high price to sit in this chair. Well, we're grateful for you sharing. And, uh, and I'm always aware of it. Always aware of it too. So no question. I know where I came from. Okay. Here we go. Role model. I just want to say that. Well, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what spirit has in okay. store for us in what chat. What does spirit say? Let's see. What else? What else? Did we miss anything? Oh, covenant, sacred contract. Oh, that's a beautiful one. So I'm going to look up the deck here. Commitment 
for the greater good. It's important that you understand what you're signing up for. Be sure to read the fine print so as not to commit to something you'll soon regret. Right? So, <laughs> so like, get ready. Don't hesitate to put all your own cards on the table so that your motives and desires are transparent and nothing is left in darkness. Mm. When shadow elements remain hidden, the covenant breaks down and becomes a contract with an unspoken dark side that is inevitably fulfilled. Like the bottom line is, is that, you know, it says you've been invited now by the universe to enter into a sacred contract. So the sacred contract in recovery is I am willing to go to any lengths, any lengths, no shortcuts. If there are shortcuts, the shadow will take over, right? That's the contract. That's the covenant that mm -hmm. it's got to be clean. That, I, that my conscious contact to a higher power and my primary relationship is with spirit and everything comes second, right? If I, if I let the ego run, that's what's going to happen. So that, that's what I'm signing up for, right? Is the consciousness of that. And you can't, you can't be in denial. Like it, you, it ruins it for yourself. If you decide to make a commitment to change, mm -hmm. uh-oh, right? <laughs> you better be, be willing to see what, what can happen. And also, it's like, if you're listening to this right now, and you were looking for a sign <laughs> about moving forward and transforming yourself and going into any, you know, you need to go into the shadow to take a look to see what is there for you to be able to fulfill that sacred contract. You're the highest purpose you can contribute to this whole world, your life, your sacred contracts that you signed up for before you even got here. Yep. This is it. This is your sign. <laughs> There's a yeah. lot of tools that you shared. And um, I mean... And it takes courage. Yeah, it takes courage, yeah. It's, you know, but I think here's the other thing about the sacred contract card, which isn't in the card, but I always think of the sacred contract is that we all have a sacred contract when we come onto this planet. We're here as emissaries of the divine. The divine lives inside us. We're not, it's not outside separate to us. And I think that's been a problem with many organized religions. I'm not against organized religion at all. I actually wanted to be an interfaith minister. I think there's beauty in all of them. But there's this idea of spirit is outside of us and somehow we're human beings, you know, pleading for something out of us. But it lives in us, you know, and that contract is that if we deny that divinity within us and only listen to our ego selves, we are going to have consequences that are going to be painful. And it goes both ways too, you know, like people can project and it's not, right? They, they can project onto you too. And we see a lot of that now, especially with the polarization that are going on in the world. So our contract is to be the best us, not the best meaning like who's best is that, but it's more doing about- Doing your best, right? Well, doing your best, but also fulfillment. Like it's it's fulfilling the experience of being fully human you know, bringing your humanity to the table and bringing love. That is, a, we have a capacity to really help and heal one another through that one thing, the acts of compassion, love, and also self-care, self-preservation, like in a way too, like not to try to do other people's work for them. If mm -hmm. somebody doesn't, like you can't rob people of their bottom either, mm -hmm. right? Like people have to come to that to themselves. Like I will never tell anybody you need to be in recovery. You know, when we call, use those terms in recovery, it means, you know, addiction recovery or whatever. Mm -hmm. It That has to be somebody else's choice. But I can share my journey because I kicked, I didn't want to go for a year. Now I'm not going there. No way. That was the last, last house on the road for me was when I had to surrender because nothing else worked. And it finally did. And that's the gift. 
So our contract, if you're not an addict, if you're not an alcoholic, if you, if you don't identify with addiction at all, but you are suffering in some way right now because you're not radically accepting the world as it is around you, you can't really make any changes because you're not seeing with clarity. You know, so it's realizing that we're, we have to be in this together. So just one small act of kindness can change somebody's life and let them feel that they're not alone. And you don't even know what you're, when you're impacting somebody. You don't know. Thank you so much, Colette. This was incredible. I am extremely grateful and humbled to be here. Thank you. To find a transcript of this episode, quotes and links to what we've been speaking about here today, head on over to our show notes page at itwpodcast.com or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you for this real and raw conversation and for sharing your story, perspective and insight, Colette. You know we all love you. And to everyone listening, please remember if anything we've discussed here today is leaving you feeling triggered or you're feeling like something came up for you, we encourage you to take a minute to look up our resources page, which you can find in the show notes. And we're also advocates of deep breathing, self-care and self-compassion. Thank you for listening and joining us here within Spirit and Recovery on Inside the Wooniverse. Until next time, be well. Spirit and Recovery is a production of Universal Network Studios. A special thanks to our recording engineer, Chris Dupuis, executive producer, Connie Deletti, story editor, Julie Fink, and post-production audio by Lonnie Carmichael. Music, courtesy of APM Music. And don't forget to keep up to date on episode releases and much more by going to itwpodcast.com. Thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us next time for another episode of Inside the Wooniverse a podcast brought to you from the corner of Fringe and Maine.